Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. If you grew up with the King James, it reads this way. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know ye that the Lord, he is God. It is he that hath made us, and not we ourselves. We are his people, and the sheep of his pasture. Enter, his, enter into his gates with thanksgiving, and into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him, and bless his name. For the Lord is good, his mercy is everlasting, and his truth endureth to all generations. If you grew up with the NIV, it reads this way. Shout for joy to the Lord all the earth. Do you all know that song? Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. This is the word of the Lord. This psalm, Psalm 100, probably deliberately placed by they who arrange the psalms under the influence of the Holy Spirit, many would say, as Psalm 100, uh, uh, ordered in its place. This psalm is an instruction manual for your quiet time and for your church worship service. It's a how to encounter God supernaturally and how to, how to come into his presence in a way befitting of the king. Let's first look at the structure of this psalm. It's a, it's a one-two, one-two, double combo punch. The, the first two verses go together. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Why? Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. So first it tells us how to come, uh, joyfully, noisily, everybody together, uh, with gladness, in service, uh, with singing. Then it tells us why, because he's God. Then it breaks down our relation to this God and it identifies a little bit about his character right now as shepherd. And just by using the word 
all capitals L-O-R-D, which is Yahweh, that tells us right there all about the history of his name, about his character, about his dealings with his people, his unfaithful people to whom he remained faithful. So that's why we can do this with singing. So it's a, it's a one punch, uh, come into his presence this way in service, in singing gladly. Why? Because of who he is and because of who we are to him. Here's the second one-two punch combo. It tells us again how to come. Saying thank you. Saying thank you. And praising him. And saying thank you. And blessing him. There's a lot of repetition here. The writer of this psalm is very excited. And we can be too. That's the, that's the point here, one of them. Why? Here's the, here's the second hook of the second one-two punch combo. It said, come saying, thank you, for the Lord is good. It tells us who he is. And what's more, his steadfast love, it doesn't end. It's new every morning. It's there waiting for you when you wake up. His faithfulness isn't just for you. It's for our children, for all the children of faith and of promise, for all the generations to come. So if things look bad now, don't worry. He won't change, and he'll be there for your children and your children's children. So this is a how do we come into his presence and, and a why we come that way. It's because of who he is and how he has made himself a shepherd to us who are the people of his pasture. This psalm doesn't make sense if you read it the way I used to read it, which was, verse one, make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. So I'm thinking, all right, I gotta be joyful, gotta be noisy, uh, I gotta serve him, I gotta be glad, I gotta be singing, and then I'd skip who he is, and I'd go right to, and I gotta be saying thank you, and I gotta be praising him, gotta be saying thank you for the third time, and I gotta be blessing his name. And then I'd skip the end. If you read it that way, which is how I used to read it, um, I would come away with a a how-to manual of how to do a quiet time, but he was missing from it. It was, was, I've got to thank him. I've got to praise him. I've got to try harder. I've got to cheer up. I've got to be optimistic. I've got to have a quiet time every day. It's got to be, you know, better be with a smile. And I got to come up with lots of things to say thank you for. Me, 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 I, I, I. That's not how we're to read this psalm. The point of this psalm is God. And because of the, the, in the four sections, because of section two and section four, because of who he is and specifically who he is to us. And then the repetition of who he is, especially emphasizing his, his chesed, in the Hebrew, which means his loving kindness, I think is the word in the King James, is that right? Or in uh, the NIV, it says steadfast love, I believe. And then the ESV, steadfast love. That's, we actually named Lily that, that's her middle name, Hesed, because I love that that is one of the most oft highlighted qualities of this God to whom we come every morning, every Sunday morning, day in, day out, week in, week out, 
It's not that he's harsh. It's not that I have to be coming and I have to have a smile on my face. It's, it's not, this isn't really about me or hardly, a, it's secondarily about how I'm supposed to respond. It's primarily about him. It's a how to, how to look at him rightly. And having seen him, all we do is respond. The response is, is a natural outflowing. Like when you, when you come to church uh, grumpy or sad or whatever on a Sunday morning, and there's that one person who totally brightens your day. And when they shake your hand or say hi to you or whatever, all of a sudden things are significantly better. Or you go to work and it's like that. Or you come home from work and there's, there's that child or spouse or, who, or housemate there to, to greet you and, and the light of their smile naturally makes you smile and it just softens your eyes. You know that feeling? That's a good one. That's what this psalm is telling us to do. You don't have to do that. You just, you just see him and then your heart responds this way. But it's also telling us we have to be deliberate about it. We have to show up. We have to be there in his presence and wait on him and seek him. And upon seeing him, that's when our hearts are to overflow with thank yous for all kinds of things, especially for who he is and who he is to us and for the gospel of Jesus humbling himself for us that we might be lifted up and for everything else too. So the main point of this psalm, it could be titled, How to Forget About Yourself and Meet God Every Day. It takes a huge burden off me to know that my job as a Christian is just to see him. And I don't have to be and I don't have to do. If I see him, I will be and do and become because I'll be transformed in his presence. This is the gospel we teach. This is not a religion of clean up, get it right, get it straight, last chance, whoops, you didn't make it, you're out. This is a religion of him. And those who see him, know him, and become his, and supernaturally become like him, and that's his doing. So how do you live the Christian life together? We do it by seeing him. Where do you see him? Of course, in the scripture. Of course, in prayer. Of course, in one another. In your love for your housemate or your family member. Or that Christian that might be a Christian, but you doubt it. Love him anyway. And it's in that expression of love that we see him. It's in the way we treat one another that we perceive that he has come to stand in our presence. We don't just know he's here when two or three are gathered together to pray. We also know he's here when someone sacrificially loves you. That reveals his character. He is known in the members of his body. So if you're taking notes, um, you might want to glance at some of these scriptures and write them down for later. These are several of my favorite, six of my favorite Encounters with God in the Bible in Exodus 24. Moses and seven of the elders of Israel go up the mountain. It's the mountain where he was to receive the Ten Commandments. And there on the mountain, 
he encounter, they encounter the living God, and it says they saw God, and they ate and drank, but he did not lay his hand on them to destroy them. They allowed people to see him. And how does Moses record it in Exodus 24? Here's his description of his encounter with God and, and what he thought about God. Start, under his feet, there was a pavement like sapphire stone. Stop. That's just about all he says about God. That should like send chills down your spine. Moses is one of the best writers in the world. He's a, he's probably a, you know, he's, he's a very educated thinker, articulate, uh, although he didn't identify himself as such. Certainly we see that he was from the book of Moses, the Pentateuch, the Genesis through Deuteronomy that he wrote with the Holy Spirit's guidance, help, and oversight. So when he goes to describe God, how does he do it? He doesn't. All he can say is what's under his feet. He doesn't even describe the bottom of his shoes in that he's saying something about God. As you meditate on Exodus 24, Moses and the elders encounter with God, it should send chills down your spine and humble you, thinking that this great man wouldn't even use words to talk about God or couldn't, or perhaps felt it would be improper. That is like awesome. I love that passage. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah sees the living God. He sees him in his temple. And he says, he says the train of his robe, what's that? What's that, what's that train of a robe? Anybody? What is that? You gotta raise your hand or shout it out. It's the part that's on the ground. So like, you ever see the coronation of a British monarch? Um, they, they get this special uh, robe that they wear, and they have people following behind them just to carry the different parts of it. Because one person can't drag that long a robe as they're walking up to ascend the throne, right? So the longer the train of the robe, that's the part of the robe that goes down, and there's, the idea is that king, that monarch is so great, they're, they're so worthy or, or honored or dignified that they gave them a better robe than everybody else on earth and they made it like 20 feet long. Here's Isaiah's description of God. The train of his robe filled the temple. Think about a king so much greater than every other king that's ever lived that the end of his robe, not even describe what the robe is made of or how it's glowing or shining with the glory that emanates from his presence. The train of his robe goes over here and down there and back there and up here and then over all the pews and back again and back and forth dozens of times. Then it's piled on top of itself. It's layers and layers and layers and layers deep. The whole room is full of how long his robe is. Oh my gosh. That's Isaiah's description of God. Love it. Daniel 7. One like a son of man comes to the ancient of days and is given a kingdom, dominion, and authority that will never be taken away from him. 
He's seeing the ascension of Christ to the throne of heaven in advance, hundreds of years before it happened. It says he saw the ancient of days and the hair of his head was, was like white wool. Think about, uh, think about that proverb. Um, it says, uh, gray hair is a crown to the aged. Is that how it goes? So, <laughs> Greg says, amen. <laughs> so, uh, I think there's another one that says it's a crown of glory. So, therefore, white hair, all the more. So, what if you're, you have a lot of white hair? Does that not signify that you have great age, even the greatest age? And what's Daniel's name for God? The ancient. Ancient of what? Ancient of our modern civilization back then? Ancient of all civilizations? Ancient of Adam and Eve? Ancient of anything? Ancient of the first day that he ever made back in Genesis 1 and the first night. Ancient of the first evening and the first morning. He came before it all. Daniel's vision of God is he is the elder of elders of elder of elders of elders, the elder of time. And then somebody approaches him. That should like scare you spitless. Somebody walked up to this man, this one, this one seated on his throne with this white hair like wool. Somebody out there was worthy to approach the throne. And what was given to him? You know, I, did the ancient of days take out his flaming double-edged sword and knight him or something or give him a commission? He gave him the kingdom. So Daniel's saying, someone's coming and he's going to change your destiny. And he's going to rule the world. His kingdom will never be taken away. I love Daniel 7. One like a son of man came to the ancient of days. Ezekiel 1 and 8. Um, John, what was the name of the sermon you preached uh, like three or four years ago on Ezekiel 1? Find it. It's in the archives. Really good one. In Ezekiel 1, it's like a chapter about what's underneath the, the seat that God sits on. And it's like this awesome, surreal chapter of, of what, what's on this portable throne that goes wherever his people are, wherever you are hurting, broken, wounded, offended, um, suffering grief and loss, great loss, divided from those you loved. Wherever you are, that's where he is. He's come He's come. He's on a portable throne with these huge, awesome wheels with fiery rims that were tall and awesome. Ezekiel, in his description of the, the wheels that are underneath the portable throne that, on which God goes to get to where his people are, wherever they've gone, no matter how far away from him they are, he's going to go there and meet them. That's something wonderful. That's I could just meditate on that for years and years. And in Ezekiel 8, he further describes this God. He talks about his legs. Can you see the progression through the scriptures? This is deliberate. Actually, Ezekiel comes before Daniel. But I don't know how it's ordered in the 
he earlier Hebrew Bible arrangement. It talks about his legs. It says, his legs are like fire. Upwards of his waist is like fire, enclosed all around. Does anybody watch those superhero movies? You may see like the Fantastic Four when it first came out in the 90s or something. Isn't there like one of those guys that snaps his finger and he turns into fire when he gets upset or something? So, you know, graphics are getting better and better. And maybe someday, maybe our grandchildren will see graphics in their 3D reality uh, television that's connected to your emotions and all five senses and whatnot that you plug into or whatever, you know, that, that will begin to give us a little bit of a sense of what Ezekiel was trying to scratch at. He wasn't getting very far. You can tell in Ezekiel 1 and 8, he's searching for words. He's not an inarticulate man. But there are some topics, God, for which we are almost at a loss for words. Rightly so. That says something. The point of this is he's bigger, greater, and better than words. We're trying to describe with words the ideal one from whom all ideas come. That's the concept in the ancient Greek culture of the word or the idea. It's like the original perfect idea. You know, like somewhere out there, there's a, like, if, like when you say chair, there's a chair. We think of a chair. Well, that's based on an imaginary idea of what a chair could or should be like. So in ancient Greek thinking, there was that ideal ultimate chair out there. So therefore, we all have some concrete sense of what a, what a physical chair looks like, but there is a perfect out there, and we know it must be there because we all see the physical, and we all think chair when we think chair, so therefore, there's something behind and before and above and beyond all that. And that's why in, in John, the writer describes Jesus as the word. It's that same idea, ideal idea, the ultimate, the one from whom everything we see that's lesser emanates. Matthew 17. In Matthew 17, three of Jesus' disciples are called with him to go up this mountain. Already we should be thinking of Exodus 24, when they went up on the mountain, when 70 of the elders, not all of them, 70 of them, and Moses go up on the mountain to meet with God. In Matthew 17, um, three of Jesus' disciples go up on the mountain, and all of a sudden, they see Moses. That should remind us back of Mount Sinai again. That's a clue. And Elijah should remind us of all of God's extraordinary deeds as done in the time of Elijah he sees Moses and Elijah talking with God. And, and it like blows their minds. And, and Peter starts to say something. And like all the prophets before him, words are failing him as he is muttering, let's, this is great, Jesus, let's build some tents and stay here. You know, I'll go get the tent poles. I got a hammer and what? And while he's still talking, this voice overshadows them. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Like, everybody else be quiet. When we come to meet God, according to the prescription of Psalm 100, um, we shouldn't be coming quick to say, thank you for my food and my car and my dog. And we should 
also, that's good. You should be thankful for everything, but, but come and just be quiet and think about him. Think about who he is as you have supernaturally encountered him in the past. Remember the times when he has changed your life, when he has met you when you were low, when he has met you when you were high, when he has met you in various seasons of your life and powerfully encountered with you. Remember that. Remember his encounters with the people who came before you, our ancestors, spiritually, our, our great-great-grandparents who came before us. Matthew 17 is... Uh, is referenced by Peter in 2 Peter 1.16. Another good thing to reference as Peter remembers meeting Jesus on the mountain in his glory when the cloud of glory overshadowed them. And what does Peter, or what is, how does Matthew describe it? He talks about the glory around him. He talks about what happened to his clothes. His clothes were suddenly transformed Several gospel writers record it, and they, uh, they each mention certain details uh, added together. They're talking about his clothes. His clothes are glowing, and they're, they become white, white like snow, whiter than anybody could bleach them. Think about a piece of cloth, right? Think about a piece of white cloth. Now bleach it. It's like super white, right? It's like totally white. So there was something about Jesus' clothes that was whiter than white. He's searching for words because the, the numinous, the, the beyondness, the supremacy above our ability to imagine or think of this God is greater than anything we've ever encountered before. This is how we do quiet times. This is what Psalm 100 is telling us. It's saying, think about him every morning. Go to these scriptures. Remember your encounters with him and the encounters with him had by saints of old. Then we get to Revelation 1. Fittingly, the, the close of the scripture, we've started with encounters of God where, where Abraham walked with him and where, where Moses saw what was underneath his feet and where Isaiah talked about how long his robe was. Oh, what a glorious king. And where Daniel talked about his hair, and, and Ezekiel talked about his chair, his awesome throne, and Matthew talked about his clothes and the glory around him. In Revelation 1, John writes about his face. He talks about his legs being like burnished bronze glowing in a furnace, and, and a golden sash around his waist and a white robe. His purity and his robes are the same as our robes in that he clothes us with his purity and righteousness. So in your quiet times, be thinking through this. This is what Psalm 100 is telling you to do first. And it talks about his eyes like fire, like a flame of fire. Have you ever at night stared into the glowing coals of a, of a fire pit or a campfire and just, just sat there and, and studied the coals as they burn and watched the flames leaping out from them? It's beautiful and mesmerizing and calming and 
and, and it grips your attention and imagination. I often sit around a fire late in the fall evenings and I just, just gaze at the coals as they burn and I want to stay there longer and longer into the night because it's so beautiful and peaceful. That, surely, is one of the things John was f- experiencing in the presence of Jesus, along with terror. Calm, the calming love and peace enveloping him. He talked about his hair. He said his hair was white like white wool, immediately identifying his character and nature with with the Ancient of Days himself. He's saying, Jesus, the one who came up to the throne, is like the one on the throne in being, in nature, in how long he's been living. And then in Revelation 1, he talks about his face. I am from the Northern Hemisphere, as are many of us. If you go farther north in the Northern Hemisphere, you might have in your elementary school science classes learned about how sunlight hits the earth and how crops grow. And you might have had a diagram in a science book like I did about how at the equator, a beam of sunlight that's this big, about a, a foot by a foot, a square foot of sunlight hits the equator in the, in the, when the equator is angled right, just right towards the sun and, and it lands on the ground as one square foot of sunlight. But if you go farther from the equator, closer to the poles, that same beam of sunlight isn't hitting the surface of the earth that is directly perpendicular to the sun's rays. The earth has curved, and now the sunlight is hitting at an angle. So the same one foot by one foot square beam of sunlight hits ground in farther north in the northern or south in the southern hemisphere as it, it, it lands like this. So maybe it's two or three square feet of sunlight. It's spread out. It's, it's dimmer. The atmosphere might be a little thinner in places, um, but, uh, but the sunlight is still uh, dimmer. And in some parts of the world, you can look at the sun, and obviously you're not supposed to, and of course I never did as a child, and, and it won't like instantly uh, hurt your eyes. But have you ever seen the sun shining in all its brilliance? Have you ever been close to the equator? It's a long ways from here. The sunlight we see here is not like the sunlight at the equator. I think the air is a little thicker there, and it might be more humid, so that's gonna filter some light out, but but think about it. You get more light per square foot when you look at the sun there, don't you? What if you're in the desert? What What if you're on the island of Patmos, much closer to the equator than we are, and you see, the, you see the sun rise and pass over you every day and set. What if, what if you're the Apostle John who was a young man with Jesus, now you're an old man and you're exiled on this island and you're having a vision of God. You see Jesus and you're recording it in the words that are Revelation chapter one. And, and the brightest thing you can think of is sun that's brighter than sun that most of us in this room have ever seen. And you say, That's what his face looks like. In Revelation 1, it says his face is like the sun shining in all its brilliance. The intensity of the glory of the beauty of God is is brighter than the brightest the sunlight gets. That's what John says of him. First, we talk about what's under his feet. By Revelation, we've gotten to his eyes and his face, the personal things that you see when you see a friend 
or a father who's looking at you. Moses prayed for the people of Israel, lift up the light of your countenance upon them. Like, like look at them and make the light that comes out of your face, like light things up for them so they're not in darkness and it's not cold and dead. That was his prayer, his blessing for the people. Awesome, awesome stuff. The point of this psalm, Psalm 100, is how to forget about yourself and meet God every day. We looked at a half a dozen encounters with God in the scriptures. What then is our response to these things? What do your morning or evening, whenever you do your quiet time, what are your Sunday mornings, what do they look like? How are you towards the Lord? What's, what are your thoughts and your experiences? Who knows the Winnie the Pooh characters? Winnie the Pooh, duh, there's a gimme. Uh, Eeyore, Piglet, the Owl, a uh, couple others. So what are they like? Do you guys, how many people know like their personalities? Many of us, right? So in your quiet times, I want you to imagine, let's back up a second. Imagine these huge and glorious ancient doors. They're the doors to the, the city of the people of God and God himself is in their midst and he's like the sun to them as he shines in his glory. And these ancient doors are creaking under their own weight as they're being opened and this bright light comes out and you're there and you're in front of the doors and they're being opened for you. This is what happens in your quiet time in the mornings, by the way. And these ancient doors are opening and you're coming into his presence and you can see the, the, the street, the gilded street that runs right up to his throne and on the sides of the tree of life and the river of the life and, and ho the Holy Spirit is rushing, flowing out to fill up your spirit and overflow in you. And all the angels and saints are singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And as these doors open and the light blinds you, but you can still see him. That happens in your quiet time, right? That's what's actually going on when you come into the presence of God. So what are we like when we, when we start our quiet time? Are we like Eeyore? Are we like this droopy donkey with its tail that's never been anywhere but between its legs, and its, and its nose is bumping on the ground as it drags its face. So sometimes, to be fair, you, you kind of can't help being overcome by depression. But we should not come into his presence being mopey. And that's something you can do something about by being deliberate about it. That's what Psalm 100 is saying. Don't be Eeyore, right? How about uh, Piglet? Piglet has generalized anxiety disorder. <laughs> Eeyore has ma clinical major depression. <laughs> and general pessimism, which you should not have as you approach the Lord. That is a sin. We may not. So we put off pessimism and we 
get the feel of your hands resting at your side when they're doing this, when they're reaching for your soda, and well, maybe I should make breakfast before my quiet time, and then of course you eat breakfast and you have to leave for work or school and you don't have time for a quiet time. And you, you shouldn't be fidgeting and, well, maybe I'll do this first and I gotta do this chore. This is me, in case you were wondering. This is like the battle of my life. Um, just shutting my mouth and sitting still and putting a Bible in front of me. Actually, it really helps when I get on a treadmill. So I've got a treadmill and I have these uh, that I stole from John Weiss a couple years ago. Thank you, John. This is the steadfast love of the Lord. It says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. I sing that almost every morning. This one's one thing remains. Higher than the mountains that I face. And I don't know, maybe half the time I feel like there are these insurmountable mountains that I'm facing. It's usually like I didn't finish my, my typing from my job from yesterday or something. But I, I regularly struggle with this overwhelming sense of either hopelessness or worry about that. And it's so heavy. How can, I have, how can I meet God like that? So Psalm 100 says, come into his presence with singing. So I get on the treadmill and I'm moving and that kind of helps me. So if you have ADHD or whatever, like me, um, that might help you a little. Get on your treadmill, have a Bible up there, have it up there the night before, and have a couple of song sheets up there. And you can start off by singing if you don't know what else to say, which I often do when I start to pray. Because it's written right there. So all I do is read it out loud. You should read it out loud. You should have some noise. You should be expressive. If you are perhaps uh, British or... Um, or reserved in your emotions and your expressiveness, that's okay, but you need to leave that when you come to him for your quiet times. Are we still on? Yeah? Okay. And so I make myself sing out loud, especially when I really don't feel like saying anything. That's what Psalm 100 says I have to do. It's not a suggestion, it is mandatory, you need to sing. And so sometimes I lift up my hands and even when I'm alone, and literally my family who's known me for many years um, are the only ones you know, on this side of the locked doors and they're upstairs asleep, I still feel awkward raising my hands sometimes. Not usually, but sometimes. And, and so I do because I'm supposed to. And there's something that happens when I do that that's a little bit liberating. And I realize that by obeying and singing and verbalizing and lifting and moving my body a little bit, sometimes I even, I usually do this when nobody's home, um, I actually yell like, thank you for your inexpressible gift. If I, if I can tell that I'm really struggling with like, just doubt or worry or fear or all of the above. So I get on the treadmill sometimes in the mornings and I sing, higher than the mountains that I face, stronger than the power of the grave, constant in the trial and the change. I'm like raising my hand, yes, that's me, that's me, that's me, as I'm singing this. One thing remains, one thing remains. Your love never fails, never gives up, never runs out on me. 
Your love never fails, never gives up, never runs out on me. Your love never fails, never gives up, never runs out on me. Mm -hmm. It goes on, on and on and on and on it goes. It overwhelms and satisfies my soul. And I never ever have to be afraid. One thing remains. And then it repeats, your love never fails, never gives up, never runs out on me, which is repeated three times. And then it goes into the bridge, which is even better. I can't tell you how many hundreds of times I've had to sing this just to get out of the funk so that I'm able to meet God. And that's what Psalm 100 is telling us. Do that. Have a routine like that. It doesn't have to be the same every day. It shouldn't. It'll be boring. But, but do that. Do that kind of thing a lot. Have those songs written out or in a tab on your phone or whatever. You know, it really, I think it really helps to sing it yourself and not to listen to it. Everybody's probably not like this, but I have a hard time worshiping from my spirit and feeling like I'm getting into the presence of God when I'm listening to worship music. I have a harder time then compared to when I'm singing it myself. So I don't, I don't usually listen to worship music, although sometimes I can't even get up the courage to sing a song or something if I'm being real mopey. So that helps too. This is what Psalm 100 is telling us to do. So when I was preparing this message yesterday, I got on Facebook, and you ask, how did that help you with your message, John? <laughs> exactly. And uh, I clicked on the face of a, a familiar friend. I'd kind of been wondering how they were doing because I hadn't seen him for a few years. And uh, there was a post on their wall, and it quickly became apparent to me that they had passed away. It was a... Uh, a friend from Cedarville. They were about our age, you know, about 30 or 31. They just had a kid, and, and it was a tragic death. And then I got back to sermon preparation, and I opened up Psalm 100 again. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Oh. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Hmm. And I skipped ahead. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. Oh. And it took me a while to remember how to read Psalm 100. Verse, verse 3. Know that the Lord, that's Yahweh, that's the one who is on the mountain with Moses and the elders. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. If you don't believe in special creation, you should, because that's taught here. How that was done, I hardly care. I very much care that you believe that God specially created you, because he did. You should remember that and affirm it as you begin your quiet time. God, you made me, specifically me, all of us, but you deliberately made me here in 19 whatever or 2000 whatever like and you can say that so I sometimes say that as a reminder we are his your worship your quiet time starts with remembering that he made you and that you that we belong to him so if you're starting out your quiet time 
and you don't feel like you belong anywhere or to anyone or like those who belong to you or whatever are far away or whatnot, know, know then that you belong to him. That's how you start your quiet time. The thank yous will come later. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Verse five, the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. He's never abandoned me. I've gone through some hard times. I've experienced some grief and some loss. I've been rejected. I've, I've, I've known what it's like to not have a friend. He has never abandoned me. He's always been there to welcome me, to welcome me with open arms. Think in your quiet times when you feel far away from him about, about the prodigal son. Just think about that. You're the son. Take time to think through what that felt like to be covered with feces and mud and pig feces and urine and smelly, nasty, rotted food from weeks before from when you started your journey, and that's on you. And you walked home, and the whole time you've been thinking about what you're going to say to your dad, uh, please make me a servant. Uh, <laughs> that's not going to work. What's well, the best I got? And, you know, think through that. Maybe you feel like that. We all do sometimes. And then imagine him. Imagine him. Exodus 24, Isaiah 6, Daniel 7, all these other passages. That's the one you're imagining. You're imagining the gates bursting open and the light blinding you, yet you can still see his face. And he comes running. And he's running out in front of everybody. Everybody is watching. He's like humiliating himself to get to you. And he runs out through the doors before you go through them. And he grabs you in a bear hug like Larry Trimbach. <laughs> if you know him. And he grabs you and embraces you. Tightly. It doesn't let go right away. And he just says, son or daughter. Think through that. That's what's happening in your quiet times. That's why we can say thank you. And when we say thank you, that's what we're saying thank you for. And when things are bad, when things are real bad, and you literally can't think of anything to say thank you for, because that just seems like an impossible thought, because you're so burdened, you're so worried, you're so depressed. When it says in Psalm 100, verse 5, the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations, how do you have a quiet time when being told that he's good, he's loving, really loving, he's, he's faithful, real, real faithful, what about when words aren't enough? What about when him on the throne, over there or out there or up there, isn't enough for you? How about, how about him down here? How about God comes down and puts on the humility of flesh and, and lives and dies, does what you should have done and didn't do again? He got it right, and he did it for his own glory, for himself and for you who are intimately and inseparably connected to him both in life and in death. When it says in verse three, 
we are his. That means that we belong both in life and in death to God and to his son, Jesus Christ. When you, when you can't enter his gates with thanksgiving and gladness and singing and praise and loud shouts and, and yippies, and, and I'm so glad to be alive today and, and be one of your people today, when you can't do that, remember the gospel that this God didn't stay up there and tell you, tell me thank you. That's, that's, not, that's not real. That's an f- imaginary God. And you should throw it away and trash it. And, and think about God rightly. Think about the accounts in the Gospels of the sun bruised, and his beard being pulled out. And in his awesome eternal mind, thinking as the hairs are plucked from his mustache, which, by the way, hurts really bad if you don't have a mustache. He was thinking supernaturally thinking of us, individually and together as one. And that's why we're here. And that's how and why we worship on Sunday mornings. And that's how you have your quiet time. Amen.